and welcome to Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott, I'm your host for the show and welcome to our first show of 2017. Feels really good to be able to say that, like I think 2016 was, it was a bit of a rough and traumatic year for lots of people. Uh, for me personally it was too and I'll talk about that on another podcast I'm sure. But it felt like the world went a little bit mad and it's very nice to see the back of 2016. When George Michael died on Christmas Day it was a bit like, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's totally what we should expect from this year. Uh, I had a really good New Year's Eve as well which is um, always you know, the sign that you're looking forward to seeing the back of a year. Uh, and you know they do say, they do say don't they that um, uh, New Year's Eve is for people who don't go out the rest of the year, and that's certainly become me over the last few years. You know, particularly after having a kid, it's kind of like yeah, you just don't get to go out very much. So I was really looking forward to it, and it was a, just a really nice reflective New Year's Eve, and uh, glad to put that year to bed. So lots of change in the air. Speaking to lots of people who are plotting and planning and brainstorming and getting their years off to a really good start. So I hope you are well. I hope you are. Uh, back fresh from the break and enjoying those first steps into 2017 and Gerald Ratner this is just a really big interview I'm uh, really uh, thrilled to have him as a guest here on Beyond Busy so uh, if you don't know who Gerald Ratner is if you're of a slightly younger generation than me or perhaps outside the UK uh, I'll put a couple of links here in the show notes just to give you an idea you're going to hear the um, you know the basic story but I mean needless to say Uh, Gerald Ratner was, you know, in his heyday, one of the most famous people in business. This is of an age before, obviously, Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. And and also before The Apprentice and Dragon's Den and everything else. But, you know, I mean, he was one of the household name business people uh, in the 80s and and early 90s. And uh, is also someone who's experienced extremity. If you know me, you'll know that one thing I'm really big on is... The idea of learning from extremity, like I think, I think you know, learning from people who've had very extreme success and extreme failure, and done things on a very high-profile, extreme kind of level, I think is fascinating. And I think there's always stuff that you can learn from extremity that you can bring back into everyday life. And uh, that was really how I felt at the end of this conversation with Gerald Ratner. Like it really felt like here's a guy who's come out of some very, very dark experiences. Uh, but actually come out of it all just as a richer person as a result, you know, and, and has just really uh, learned to appreciate life in a very, very uh, different way as a result of everything that he's been through. So I think you're going to be really inspired by this. I hope so anyway. Uh, and you join us in London. So we got coffee. Uh, we're in a Starbucks uh, in Bond Street. So it it was noisy. Uh, there's going to be a bit of noise in the background here. I'm hoping that adds a little bit of atmosphere to the conversation. So grab yourself a coffee as well, strap in, and here is Gerald Ratner. So how, how often are you back in London? What's your schedule in terms of how often you're around these parts? Well, uh, you know, I, often when I want to meet people, always find London's the best place to meet them even though they don't live in London and I don't live in yeah. London it's just the communications I mean yeah. when we used to have managers meetings somebody said let's have it why would we always have it in London let's have it in the Midlands and the, the Scottish managers flew down to London and then went back out to the Midlands right, so yeah. Lo- everything leads to London so uh, it's a very sad thing that whole all roads leads to London I remember when I, um, I took over uh, running a charity yes and I was living in Birmingham the charity yes. moved me down to London and 
in the couple of weeks before I started the job, I had this whole thing of like, okay, when I start, I'm going to move the whole operation to Birmingham. Why yes. do we have all these things in London? Yes. Of course, like, you know, the first week of the job is like, the Department of Education wants to see you and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, yes. well, yeah, you have to be near Westminster and yeah, yeah, yeah. near where all the funders are and all this sort of stuff. So it's just yes. the way, the way I it know, is. it is. You can't get away yeah. from it. Um, I've just been reading your book. Thank you. Uh, which I really enjoyed, uh, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again. Thank you. Um, so uh, I suppose most people who interview you start with the speech that you made. Yes, um, and it didn't take you long. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to not start there. Oh, right, That's OK. Right. Yes, uh, so I'm we impressed. will come back to that. And I think if, because um, there's a lot of listeners to this podcast who are not in the UK, right? Uh, who probably won't understand that reference, but I'll, no. I'll park that there for no, now. No, a lot of foreigners we'll don't know who I am, and a lot of people under 35 don't know who I am. Yeah, absolutely. But I think, you know, for me, um, you know, obviously reading your book, mm. something that really stood out was just the, I mean, the, and the period that you were uh, operating Ratners in. And, yes. you know, you, so you, you took over your uh, father's business and uh, the period that you were operating that in, in you know, particularly in the 1980s, where yeah. there was just a lot of money around. It was yes. high growth. Um, a just real period of success economically both yes. in the country and for you and we had mrs thatcher um, and thatcherism and all yes. those things it, it feels like it's um uh just you know the story of that rise just feels yes. really exciting as you yes as, as, as you read your book so i just wanted to ask you a little bit about ambition yes um one thing that uh, really struck me from the book was um your snooker companions. Yeah. Uh, so the the three. As of soon you as you said ambition, actually my mind thought of snooker, and then you oh, said really? snooker. That's okay. incredible <laughs> that you said that because as soon as you said ambition, yeah, that was what spurred me on. Yeah, I mean it comes across really strongly in the book. Um, so your two, you can explain who your two snooker yes. companions are. Michael Green, who was then the chairman of Carlton TV, which is ITV at the time, um, was Carlton Communications. It was called. Who was very successful and young, my age, which was in, the, in our late 30s, I suppose, and Charles Saatchi, uh, who ran Saatchi & Saatchi, world's largest advertising agency, and Charles didn't sort of mince words. He was very direct right. in everything that he said. Um, he didn't uh, sort of procrastinate very much. He was very direct, but I learned more from him than anybody else. Mm amazingly bright and intelligent man yeah did it feel did it ever feel odd to you or strange to you that the three of you playing snooker were all on very high octane career trajectories and you know you were well I wasn't I wasn't at first and that was what was bugging me yeah yeah and I kept sitting at home at night and saying well I want to be achieve what they've achieved uh, making a lot of money running a public company shares going up being in the public eye, being very successful. And those two were ahead of me. So I kept thinking, how can I do this? Because yeah. I was in this business with my father that quite frankly was going nowhere. Uh, or it was a public company. The sales figures were disastrous, hardly making any profit. And then H. Samuel, our main competitor, bought 20% of us. And then that was when really the writing was on the wall. I thought, you know. But there still was my best vehicle yeah. for success, however drab the jewellery trade was at the time, and however 
sort of everybody said that it's never going to be an, like a TV or an advertising company. Yeah. But it turned out it was very similar. <laughs> but you talk in the book about when you'd be playing snooker and each of you would sort of brag to the others about a thing that your company was doing or the, yeah. a thing that you'd achieved or whatever. Yeah, I mean, Charles would just say, by the way, I'm buying Lloyd's Bank tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Not that he ever did. And by the way, that was Charles always saying he was actually, it was Midland Bank he bid for. But yeah. Charles, being cautious, was trying to put us off the scent and said Lloyd's Bank. Yeah. Right, and Michael okay. kept doing deals and they were buying huge amount of shares and companies and things like that. Yeah. And was that important to you to have that sort of sense of one-upmanship? Oh, God, uh, it was everything. Yeah. They, they always used to have this slogan that it's not enough to succeed, others must fail. And there was just the most ridiculous company. And nobody would ever give any credit to each other for anything. Yeah. They were always putting everybody down in any way that they could. And uh, they used to put me off my shop because I was just beginning to get a very slight ball patch which I didn't even notice. And of course, every time I leaned over the snooker table, that was the main topic of conversation, try and put me off my shot. So they would do anything uh, to get one up on, on me or, or, or each other. Yeah. And they never gave anybody, even though those two were doing extremely well, and I then started doing extremely well, nobody was ever given any credit for anything. Never anybody said, well done or anything like that. Yeah. It was always put downs. Um, how do you feel about that now? Do you, I mean, do you look at that differently now? Um, Not really. It was just banter. It was just banter. Yeah. Um, I, I still have a very strong relationship with Michael. Uh, Charles, I don't really see very much, but he still has this incredible sense of humour. And would, I'm sure if I saw him in the street, he would say something uh, derogatory, which <laughs> I would find amusing, and I would say something derogatory to him, and we'd walk on. Uh, that's the way we are. We don't yeah. sort of uh, pat each other on the back. Um, but now it was all that was all the 80s, and that was all young men, uh, and it's a bit vulgar, and uh, we're not like that anymore at all. Yeah. Um, tell me about having the three share prices on yeah. your computer screen in front of you. So Carlton, yeah. Saatchi. Yeah. And, no. And somebody. Matt. It was John Jay who was then the editor of the business. Uh, Sunday Times business section came in and everyone in those days had these screens I've forgotten what they're called now but they were just basically the share price which you saw in the you know all the stockbrokers had in front of them and um, he looked at the screen all I had on those screen was Carlton share price and uh, Saatchi's and Ratner's the three of them there but most people would have you can custom it to your sector so they thought I might have right. the retail sector yeah. I just had those three and it was that it was competition and actually by then my share price was the one that was going up more than anybody's in fact in 1989 or 88 was it or 87 something like that uh, no it was 86 actually it went up it was the share of the year it went up from I think about 35 pence to four pounds in one year which was higher than any other share wow. so yeah but then I went to see somebody um, when I made my speech, and I was very depressed, a psychiatrist, and he said, well, looking at your share price doesn't actually make you happy. There's more to life than that. And he was right. Mm. But in those days, <laughs> I was quite happy. I didn't <laughs> realize that that wasn't the way to uh, live, and I was very happy to see my share price going up every day. Yeah, I'd love to talk to you more about uh, that sense of, uh, you know, m realizing realization that money doesn't make you happy. There's a yeah. line in your book where you said, um, 
if I hadn't been so hungry for success, I might have stopped to think about the fact that I was doing quite well for myself. And this was at a point when you were 30 years old, MD of a company yeah. with a 20 mil, 27 million pound turnover, yeah. 500 staff. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting to me yeah. as part of this podcast and kind of thinking about how people define happiness and success. Well, you know, I'd like, if like, I had that now today, yeah. although it became much bigger than that, if, if I just had that today, I would really appreciate it. Yeah. I'd really be happy, which I didn't then. So um, I now have learnt the hard way to start appreciating things, uh, which human nature sometimes you only do when you lose it all. Yeah. Um, but I certainly didn't appreciate the, the private jet, the helicopter, house in the country, and all the trappings of wealth. I didn't, but now, and I don't have anything like that today, uh, although I have made somewhat of a comeback, but what I have made now, I do really appreciate. Mm. You know, I appreciate holidays more even though I might fly Ryanair rather than Concorde. <laughs> <laughs> I, prefer, I prefer the holidays today than I did. Yeah. Is there, um, is there a shortcut to that appreciation? So you're saying you learnt that the hard way by having a lot of money and then losing a lot of money. Yes. Um, is there a shortcut to getting to that sense of appreciation where you wouldn't have to go through what you went through? Well, you, you know? only have to, you have to, as I do in my speeches, and I don't do this in my speech, but if there's Q&As, I say to them, smell the roses, appreciate the success that you've got, because let me tell you, when you lose it, you really do miss it, and you do really um, realise what you had achieved. Yeah. But somehow, when you're up there, you don't, you're always striving, which is unfortunate. You're always striving for the next step upwards, it's never enough, next step up the ladder. But you know, really enjoy what you've got. Mm. Because it doesn't sometimes last forever and business is unpredictable. Whatever anybody seems to, however secure people think they are, um, life is not like that. You know, life, the one thing that I have learned is you can't predict the future. And something always surprising will happen. Sometimes very good, sometimes very bad. When I had just Ratners, I couldn't believe that I'd bought H. Samuel. I never would have believed that in a million years. But then I would never have believed that I would lose it all making a stupid speech. So all of my, that that's happened to me are things that I could never predict. But the sad thing is, in a way, that when I did have all that, and I was really at the top of the tree, that I wasn't satisfied with it, and I was still yearning for more which is ridiculous yeah. when you think. Uh, there was once a cartoon about me lifting up the globe and saying, well, the world's not big enough for me, you know, because right. I kept doing acquisitions <laughs> all over the world, America and stuff like that. And it, well, there was a bit of truth in that, which is ridiculous. Yeah. But then again, perhaps I wouldn't have been successful if I didn't have that type of uh, rapacious appetite. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, the thing of um, there's always one step up the ladder is I think something that people feel at like every stage on a career path, right? So yeah. you get your first job and you want a bit more of a salary and then you, you, know, you want a house and then you want a bigger house yeah. and it continues on and on. Um, and I'm wondering how much of that is just inherent in the, like how much of the DNA of that going up the ladder yes. uh, kind of idea is, is you know, part of the success or whether you could define Okay, it's not actually a ladder, but like I just need to step mm. up to this point, and then I'll, you know, like can can you get to a place of just saying I'm satisfied somewhere in the middle? And well, know, I've never met. I don't know. I mean, I'm satisfied at the moment. Uh, which sounds terrible because that's the other side of the coin, which my wife would accuse me of 
not having enough drive anymore. Mm. But um, I think that when you are striving, uh, yes, that is a, an ingredient success. What I'm saying to you, I'm not knocking it in terms of being an ingredient success. What I'm doing is I'm knocking it in terms of making you happy. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of people that have a big ego, and let's face it, that that's part of it, the ego, because it's not the money anymore. It's you against other competitors. It's you against Jeffrey Smith, who lives, who's running another jewelry yeah, business, yeah. and we want to beat him or some other guy in your sector or even somebody in your own company. You are competing, um, and it's a good thing because you're using your brain, and it's a like chess, and and you are happy when you're actually pushing your brain as much as possible. And I believe in industry and in business, you do use your brain more than in any other field, certainly in politics or in private sector or even doctors and stuff like that. I don't know, but I think that in business you really get pushed yeah. to the limit. And the more, yeah. the more you're pushed, just like exercise, the happier you become. But then uh, the ego takes over and somebody's doing better than you, mm. and that's annoying. There'll always be somebody doing better, and that doesn't make you happy because you've built yourself up, puffed yourself up so much uh, that you know I've seen people that are just ridiculously successful billionaires in fact who are just unhappy because there's one person <laughs> who's higher in the rich than, than them or, yeah or it's just them, yeah. ridiculous yeah. Um, so you've got to be aware of that but if you then are aware of that does that mean then you don't push yourself to make the extra billion yeah. so yeah, the two sure. things um, conflict in a way and I think that also, that it can affect your personal life. I mean, it certainly affected my marriage. Yeah. Because business was so exciting, such an adrenaline rush, there were so many things happening at the time in the 80s. And then I used to come home and sit and have dinner with my wife uh, and family, dog, and somehow it was just a bit deflation, it was a bit of deflationary, really, because it was. I was on such a high and then I came down to sort of this mundane existence in the evening. Right. And it sounds yeah. ridiculous. Now, when I come home, I really look forward to going home, coming home. And you know, when I go to dinner parties, there's somebody sitting next to me, I don't just talk about myself, I'm interested in them. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, and, there's a conflict there somewhere. And in terms, of, um, so in terms of family life and in terms of marriage, there's a bit in the book where you talked about... Um, uh, what was the bit where you were saying about uh, I think it was the H. Samuel deal yes and so you did that deal you're on a massive high you, you yes. just moved into a new house yes uh, you came home on this huge high yes. uh, locked up the Porsche went inside yes and then your wife says to you I want to get divorced yeah in fairness to her she was waiting for the, me to do the H. she didn't want to tell done, me before right, because okay. she felt that it might affect yeah. because there was a it, H. Samuel was a very difficult deal to do because the family owned over 50% and the negotiations went on for a long time um, so she waited till I acquired it because she didn't want to jeopardise right. uh, the acquisition so it was like as soon as she knew that was sealed yeah. the deal was yeah. sealed and signed yeah. you know that was when she yeah. approached that with you so you were going through this period of personal turmoil on the one hand and yeah. then huge business success yeah. at the same moment yeah um, yeah. What's your memory looking back on that time now? Well, the H. Samuel was the deal uh, that put me on the map because I had 130 stores and H. Samuel had 400. And that was the sort of thing that was happening in the 80s. Iceland bought B. Jam. Everyone was buying companies. 
uh, that were much bigger than them. Mm. I think WPP Martin Sorrell was buying J. Walter Thompson or something. That, you could buy a company, you can't really do that today, you could buy a company three times your size. But in fairness, we were really performing extremely well. HM were performing extremely badly. And we got a guy called David Brewerton, who's a journalist in the Daily Telegraph, in his Questo column to say that Ratner should be taking over H. Samuel. So you could plant a story like that and that focused the minds on the shareholders and the family. Um, so it was a very cunning deal, if you like. I was very pleased with myself for pulling it off. But yes, in the middle of this, my wife was divorcing me and which made me very depressed took away any of the pleasure. In fact, I remember not eating, couldn't eat. I was so down. But I still carried on, even though HM had agreed, there was still a certain amount of work to do after that. Yeah. And I remember meeting uh, the chairman of HM who I was taking over after uh, not eating for four or five days. And um, so it was uh, a lot of the excitement of the deal was taken away by my personal situation um, but I, I went through with it all and um, it was in terms of the deal with H Samuel nobody could buy H Samuel because uh, the chairman one didn't want to go he wanted to carry on running things uh, because he had 40% personally his mother had 10% um, and they had a very complicated structure in those days which was voting shares and non-voting shares totally scorned upon by the city. So the only way to get round it was actually to make um, him the chairman of the company, to, do, to, to, to present it to him as a merger. Right. Uh, and I would be chief executive and he would bring on his directors. But I was very careful to make sure that we would have one more director than him because my plan was always to get rid of him. Yeah which sounds a bit brutal, but he was absolutely useless and running the company down the, down the hill. So that was the only way to, to, uh, to achieve the deal. And sure enough, I did get rid of him. And, people were, and then later uh, on, when I hired a chairman, he got rid of me. So I suppose you could say that justice was done. In that yeah, case. yeah. Um, there was a couple of other uh, that just jog my memory around um, just a couple of questions I had for you around other uh, very strong personal relationships and friendships within business and the dynamics that play out in those so um, tell me about Terry Jordan well, Terry Jordan um, I was sitting at home looking at Charles and Michael's huge success and Terry Jordan had been a buyer under my father and he was a brilliant buyer. And my father treated him rather badly. My father treated everybody rather badly, particularly him. And uh, they used to argue a lot. And in the end, Terry left and he opened up shops himself. In fact, he was probably doing that while he was still with us. Anyway, it was clear that. And he was called, his, his business was called Terry's as well. It was right? called Terry's, called Terry's and he quickly yeah. opened up 26 shops and they're all next door to Ratner's. And he had a poster saying, compare our prices. And he very simply was buying, uh, was selling a uh, cheaper price than us. And also the fact that Ratner's in the early days was quite successful under Terry's, but then when he left, the business went downhill. 
not making any profit. And he was doing, he was like the old Ratners. Yeah, yeah. And he was doing incredibly well. So I used to sit at home thinking the only way to turn Ratners round, because I wasn't a buyer, um, was to get our buyer back, Terry Jordan. He is the key to it. And I could see his shots of pack. This wasn't rocket science. That we were doing the wrong thing. And by the way, he was just um, pilot high, sell it cheap, where we were sort of chandeliers and velvet pads. Yeah. And it was clear to me that the public would buy on price on jewellery. If they could save a few quid, they would. Which it, sounds really simple now, but that, simple. at the time, that was a really innovative thing to do. Like, jewellery shops were much more conservative in their you know, appearance and it all was that sort of stuff. Like because it, it wasn't every, everybody's now offering 50% off yeah. on special deals and all sorts of stuff and cutting on price. But nobody was doing it in the jewellery business at all. And um, although Terry was actually not offering, doing a lot of posters, that was to come later with us. So when we added, when I got Terry back, I ended up uh, buying his business um, where I couldn't raise the money, four million pounds to buy it, to get him back onto the company. My father objected, but then by then my father was really on his way out because. Um, and he objected, and uh, the only way to actually buy Terry was to buy, buy his company with his own money, because I couldn't, the, the stockbrokers wouldn't raise the money because Ratten shares were so low. So I bought it with his own money. So I basically just wrote him out a piece of paper, an IOU, uh, offering him the shares in right. the company, yeah. which he ended up making a fortune, of course. And actually, when he came back to us, he wasn't... He wasn't as good as I thought he was, but it coincided with me then appointing my cousin, Victor, as the buyer, who turned out to be fantastically good. Yeah. Um, but he did, Terry did teach us a lot of things in an afternoon, but actually, when he got all that money, he didn't actually work that hard. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a bit, but nevertheless, it was our turning point. Yeah. And our sales started, we changed the way we did things dramatically from being the chandeliers, the velvet pads, the managers in three-piece suit, to sort of posters, cutting prices, pop music, uh, lighter jewellery, everything changed, everything that could change, changed. And then that was phenomenally successful. And it was basically the Terry's formula, uh, but, but with a little bit more. And then uh, when we introduced that into H. Samuel, with the name that they had and the locations they had. I remember turning up at Croydon Whitgift where they had the most phenomenal shot, right, huge, I mean, we had tiny 500 foot square, they had 1500 foot square. To put all that cheapest jewellery in with all the posts and it, just with their name was just absolutely yeah. phenomenal. We yeah. were selling like a thousand earrings a day and with queues outside the shop. You know, when sometimes a product sort of goes viral in those not that there was any internet in those days but you know that was the only way I could describe it we went viral um, it was just very very rewarding for me and what was your relationship with him along that path then so in a sense you know he's an employee of the business and you know he's a, a brilliant buyer but mm. in a sense you know your dad and you uh, have have employed him and, and yes. that company has taught him everything that he knows. He well, when Terry came in, my father left. Right, okay. But anyway, yes. So then he leaves and goes off and does his own thing as not just in the same industry, but he's putting up posters saying we're cheaper than Ratners. Like, he's yes. really aggressively it was in those days, uh, competing against you. Yeah. Um, and, 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 the, and the shops, the 26 shops where he was, 
we were really doing we were doing yeah. badly everywhere but but those yeah. 26 towns we were doing hideously badly yeah so in the place so you know you can really see you can see the numbers of, of the effects that his absolutely his activities are having on, on your business. Yeah. It was loud so, and clear the message. Uh, what surprised me was that you talk about him really affectionately in the book. It really feels like there's a point where you say, "Well, I don't blame him. I probably would have done the same thing." Absolutely. And, and all of that. And absolutely. so, um, just interested if there was ever a time where you had less of a, you know, uh, less than affection for him in those terms, or you were really angry about it, or just how you saw it. Well, everyone was angry about him leaving us and starting up and attacking us, um, except for me. I had some, because I was against my own board, which my father my, and my uncle was there and, uh, and their sort of died in the wall approach. I loved the, the refreshing, you know, it was the 80s and you did, I was somebody who loved breaking the rules doing naughty things if you like doing being a bit outrageous um, and that's what Terry was doing so I admired that even though it was hurting myself I had a secret admiration you know I really looked up at him and used to sit at home for, for months and months when he left thinking god this guy is really my god and he really he is really knows what he's doing and we really don't know what we're doing so I did have this sort of sycophantic approach to him and um, when I acquired him I, I listened very carefully to what he said and went to see his managers and told them that you are doing absolutely the right thing we're doing completely the wrong thing but then soon soon after I acquired him we started doing all the right things right yeah so I was no longer knocking ourselves anymore so in a sense that you know the the four million pounds mm. it pays pays itself back quite yes. quickly by acquiring that that knowledge and kind of giving you that shift in direction and enabling you to change the way yeah, the business Yeah, the is four million pound was not really for the 26 shops because actually after we acquired those 26 shops, they started doing badly because Ratner's then, which had a better name than Terry's, with adopting the right merchandise, then Terry's yeah. <laughs> couldn't compete yeah. and they were next door everybody. So we, he was actually, uh, what's the word, by his own petard, hoisted by his own petard, because mm. he gave us the formula. And of course, when we had the formula, Ratner's then did a lot better than Terry's. So what I paid that 4.2 million was basically for Terry Jordan. Yeah. It's like buying a footballer. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, you needed a centre forward. Yeah. Because uh, we weren't scoring goals. And he did that for us, but then he got very rich, because as I said, the share price went from about 30p to £4.20. And he became a completely different Terry Jordan. Mm. Although I still remained friends with him, and he lived in Portugal to save tax, and I used to have dinner with him up until a few, sadly he died a few years ago, but before then we used to have dinner and everything, we were very, very friendly. But I remember the Terry Jordan, who was the buyer at Ratner's, and I used to go in to see him, and I. You know, and I was young, he was much older than me, so he was like a father figure and I, when he worked for my dad. And I used to say, you know, you're going on holiday? He says, yeah, um, I'm going to Butlins for a week. And he had the common touch. He didn't have any money. He said, I went out, he said, I had scampies the other day and things like that. He was very, very, uh, you know, just had the common touch and yeah. very basic. And that's why he knew the customers and bought the product that they wanted. And I could see that clearly. Um, but then, when he made all that money, he then started buying Rolls Royces and going to Ascot and uh, having houses in Portugal. 
and that the Terry Jordan that I knew and loved was completely the opposite. Yeah. And his big attraction was the fact that he had he was he he was he didn't have any money and he had this humble approach. <laughs> and in fact, once when I went to buy his business in uh, his head, head office was in Uxbridge in his office, and even then, you know, he was worth a few million quid. His office was above the shop, and it was the worst office you've ever seen in fact his desk was a plank <laughs> and it had a sink in the office and a woman came in and started doing the washing because that was where his office was and I said this is ridiculous his office and he said well the customers don't see it yeah. I only spend money where the customers see it and that was his yeah. whole approach which I loved it's very like Sam Wall Sam Walmart you know the Sam yeah. Wall of Sam always used to drive in a pickup truck you know that, that was the uh, attraction and I mean you there's a couple of bits in your book where you talk about your dad in a similar way around that philosophy of don't spend money unless yeah. the customers can see it and absolutely your my dad's. father did travel light as well yeah and your Friends dad's um, office above is it on Oxford Street where yeah. um, above the office he had all the boxes piled so high that you yes. couldn't get into the it was the biggest fire risk of all, a fire stuff. officer would have closed it down yeah because we had no space for any of the stocks it was all piled on the steps in cardboard boxes which is mm. totally ridiculous but that was the world we lived in in those days. There was nobody driving us mad with bureaucracy. You could do whatever you liked. Yeah. But it was an absolute ridiculous... Uh, we worked under the most <laughs> ludicrous conditions. So, no such thing as air conditioning or <laughs> anything like that. It was no money was spent whatsoever. In fact, I showed Michael Green. Well, he came up to meet me for lunch once. And he said he walked around... Uh, my office and he looked at some and he says I can't there's a shed outside he says I can't believe there's somebody in there working there the man's office is a shed <laughs> and he couldn't get his head around that but I can tell you that it was very good business because of the fact if you as Terry Jordan always used to say all I do is I spend money to get the ticket price down so that means no fancy offices no advertising no designers um no marble, no nothing expensive. Just get the ticket price down. Yeah, and that was the philosophy. And that, you know, there's a lot of retailers today that come up with lots of different theories and stuff like that. But probably getting the, with the exception of things like, you know, perfume and things where it works the other way, and Tiffany's and Bond Street where we are now. With the exception of that little pocket of the world. It is probably the most powerful thing you can do is to get your ticket price down if you yeah. look at any successful industry. Mm. Whether it's EasyJet or, you know, uh, or whether it's um, Sports Direct, Ryanair, you know, uh, you know, Primark, most successful clothing retailer. It is still a very powerful... I mean, if you can build a brand, that's fine, but, you know, it's still a very, very powerful thing. And what we did is we had that... Uh, we had that low ticket price, but we also had the brands, whereas H. Samuel, Ratner's, Ernest Jones, Leslie Davis, Zales, we had all the top brands with the low ticket price, so yeah. that worked wonders. So that probably brings me on quite nicely to talk about the speech. Yes. Uh, so then everything got ruined in one yeah, so in one in one stroke. So your I life changed in, in 1991. Yes. Um, with the speech. So uh, 
let's just uh, assume that some of these, uh, some of the listeners will never have heard the story. So yeah. uh, uh, just just give the background of the speech itself and. Um, well, I was asked there. to make a speech for the Institute of Directors, and I could. I was looking at the Institute at the Albert Hall, and I knew the year before was um, Anita Roddick, and the year before that was uh, some top business. It was always they always invited the flavour of the month, if you like, the top businessman to address the five thousand Institute of Directors members at the Albert Hall. So it was a big honour for me. And um, it was like another sort of accolade which I was getting at the time. I was retailer of the year. It was another step up and I thought, yeah, this is what I want. So I wrote a speech which was a very, which is actually on YouTube now. It's had about 25,000 hits. And um, it was a very serious speech. I, it was so serious that I did something which I don't normally do and consulted my co-directors thought I'd be really sort of businessy and professional about this, <laughs> unlike me, and I sent a draft copy to them all, which I never did before. Nobody came back with anything other than one of the directors, um, Mr. Hussain, who said that it's a good speech, but it doesn't have any jokes. So I said, well, the joke that I've used before, and this was a joke uh, when uh, a journalist called Maggie Uri from the Financial Times, just after we bought H. Samuel, visited the warehouse in Birmingham and they were showing her various products. And uh, one of the products was a sherry decanter because H. Samuel were big on gifts. And I'd criticised this in the fight against H. Samuel. I said H. Samuel should be selling jewellery and diamond rings instead of gifts. There are jewellers. And I, I pointed out sherry decanter is an awful thing to sell. Anyway, when we bought the H. Samuel, <laughs> I couldn't get rid of all these gifts because actually they were selling extremely well, right. especially the sherry decant. <laughs> so, I ca and also they had the big enough shops to do it. But we did put their diamond rings right and everything like that in fairness. So when I, um, in 1986, when I was showing um, Maggie Uri around the thing, she looked, they, they showed the sherry decant and said, look at this, this is a phenomenal seller and it's so cheap. In fact, I got the price wrong in the speech, but it, I think it was about 9.95 or 12.95 or something, which is amazing with a dish, a sherry decanter, six glasses. And she says, that is unbelievably cheap. How can you sell it for such a low price? Uh, in fact, it was because it came from the Far East or whatever, which was unusual in those days. And I said as a joke, because it's crap. And she laughed, everyone laughed. But the next day she did actually put it in the article in the FT that I described as crap. Nobody actually got fussed about it because it was 1987, everyone was doing well. Uh, in fact, Goldman Sachs, for a joke, presented it to their top salesman uh, because it was like folklore in the city that I called this thing. But nobody, none well, of my customers... presented the sherry decanter as the, as the sales prize kind of thing. Yes. Right, okay. Yes. <laughs> as it was like a joke yeah. at one of their parties. Uh, they said, this is Gerald Ratner Sherry decanter. It's just a, it was a standing joke. But um, anyway, so I said, well, that joke, I, then I used it again at various functions. And um, I said, that, that if you want a joke, that's quite a good joke. People seem to find that one funny. So he said, well, put that in. I said, well, it's H. Samuel. He said, oh, it doesn't matter. Just put it in as Ratner's. And um, I said, well, the other joke is the prawn sandwich one where we sell a 
pair of earrings for 99p, which is the same price as a Marks and Spencer's prawn sandwich, but I have to say, the sandwich would probably last longer than the earrings. In fact, when I first said that, again it was Maggie Uri, not that I hold anything against her, at an analyst meeting, and I actually said that we sell a pair of earrings for 99p, and I was boasting that that is the same price as a Marks and Spencer's sandwich, and it would last a lot longer than the sandwich. But she then turned around and said, yeah, but the sandwiches last longer and everyone laughed. Right. So I thought, that's very funny. So I started using that. So I said, well, they're the two my stock jokes. So we put those in. And of course, the Daily Mirror decided that this was a criticism of my customers, that I was holding them in contempt, making fun of them, that I was very rich and they were very poor. And uh, in fact, they said I said it about my jewellery. Everything I said is crap, and they, they miss. They were just um, disingenuous about it. And the Sun then copied the Daily Mirror story, and uh, and then it, it there was no internet, but it went viral in terms of I was having an analyst meeting in America with my shops in America, and uh, the analyst who came out there, she said, "Oh, I got a taxi to the airport," and the taxi was drivers talking about nothing but this right uh, and word got around and then we stopped selling uh, people have stopped buying stuff from us uh, basically stopped buying the more expensive product then the cheaper product and stopped buying everything from us and then started stopped going into H Samuel because they discovered I owned that and it had this most disastrous effect um, which actually ended 18 months later with me trying to fight it off um, by hiring a chairman to help me out who fired me so um, yeah it was a slow death and it's uh, a tragedy that after building up a successful business after having all those years of really tough times with my father and stuff like that that I turned it round had seven years of the most massive growth fantastic camaraderie in the company we had lots of young managers who always used to say to me I'd given them a chance but nobody else did Profits went from nothing to 125 million. We were one of the few retailers to succeed in America, which is still a very successful business today, worth about 10 billion pounds, under the name Signet. All of that just was forgotten, and I always say it's a bit like now saying, well, the Titanic had hundreds of miles of pleasurable, uneventful, sailing before it hit the iceberg and because nobody remembers (laughs) anything but hitting the iceberg Um, how do you feel about it now so you mentioned that it's on YouTube and has had lots of hits on YouTube and stuff and you mentioned in the book that it it pervades lots of the pages and lots of the other parts of your life Um, yeah I mean what do you think about that speech now well there's a book there's a film that my beautiful life where this guy suffers from some mental problem. He keeps seeing people. Mm. And uh, he has lots of treatments. And in the end, they're still there. A man, a woman, and a young girl are standing there when he actually receives some sort of award. And he's saying, yeah, well, they're still there. They're always in the shadows. They're always appearing. But they're not driving me mad anymore. And after 25 years, it's not driving me mad anymore. They're still there, and we're, so here we are talking about it now. Yeah. But you live with it, 
and um, I did lose everything but probably a happier person today I love doing my speeches every we do quite a lot every you know I'm doing one tomorrow I did one last week I mean I did one for the um, Queen's Award for Industry at Westminster in front of a rather prestigious audience they all laughed Yes, I am laughing at myself, I'm being self-deprecating. Sometimes I make the joke that I do a lot of self-deprecation, but I'm not even good at that. <laughs> <laughs> did, it, it, did that come hard to you, given that we started this whole conversation talking about ambition and you know, the three of you playing snooker and the yeah. one-upmanship and stuff? Like, presumably, you, know, you mentioned there's a point in business where it goes from being about the money to it being about the status and what you can achieve in the competitiveness. Yes. And so how, yeah, I mean, how did that hit you sort of straight away and how long did it take you to, to get to that place of saying, actually, I can, I can use this and be self-deprecating about it? Years and years and years and years and years and years. Yeah. And it was only when I did start laughing about it and being self-deprecating about it that I came to terms with it. But then for seven years after I lost my job, it was like daggers going into my stomach. I thought, how did this ever happen? I've lost everything, you're doing stupid. And I didn't, Michael told me not to blame the press, which I never done. Just blame myself, uh, because you won't get anywhere blaming the press, because all these footballers and celebrities always blame the press, and it just sounds crass, yeah. stupid. The reason that the press do this is because that's what they do, and uh, you should be more careful, and I was, um, well, they're doing jobs selling, selling papers, I guess. Exactly. You know, I, I guess in 1991, it was, you know, the cusp of recession and, and that sort of feeling of, like, you know, we're, we're ending this boom era and moving into something else. Well, that was Do, exactly... They were looking for, like, fall guys at that point. Oh, there's no question, just like they were looking for Fred Goodwin after the banking crisis. Yeah. There's absolutely no question that... Uh, and it's proof, because I did the joke in 87. It was in the press. Even The Sun picked it up saying Gerald's gems, he's well known for making jokes. Everyone was happy. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, so, yeah. So they'd even printed they the They even joke printed before. the joke before. Okay. But then 1991, people couldn't pay their electricity bills. Yeah. We were in a deep, deep recession. Things were really disastrous. And they were looking for scapegoats, as you say. They were looking for mm. people to blame. And here I was, perfect. Um, they saw that I was making fun of my customers, which I wasn't. They thought I had contempt for my customers, which I certainly didn't. They thought that I, was do that I didn't realise that the press were there, which I did, because I'd given a draft to all the press and it was being televised. And they thought this is a great uh, person, because um, it's no good just generally criticising businessmen. You have to bring in one personality. And I was the, I was the poster boy for this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I gave it to them on a silver platter, if you like. You know, I gave him that story. And uh, there's no question that if I would have done that speech earlier, that I would have got away, you know, wouldn't, it wouldn't have had the repercussions that it had. But people yeah. were very miserable and they were looking for a victim. They were looking for people to blame. And I, and I, and I was blamed, so yeah. And uh, when I say the, the word regret, I mean, yes. presumably it's something that you regret or have you have you got over the regret? No, I've got over it now yeah. because I would never have done all these speeches. Okay, I'm not as rich, uh, but I would never have done all the speeches. I would have had a health club which was very successful, had an online jewellery business very successful. Um, okay, nothing like the size of the business, 
but I've learnt now with the money that I have made to really spend it in ways where I really appreciate it. Mm. You know, I had a drawer full of cameras, if you like, which I never use. Now, when I buy some sort of gadget, I really make sure that yeah, uh, sure. I get pleasure out of it. Um, when I used to go on holiday, you know, the hotel suite was never good enough, the seats on the plane was not the right thing. Now, all of that rubbish is just now gone now after mm. big, going through what I went through, which was a bloody nightmare. Yeah. You know, because let's face it, in the sun's and the sky's 50 worst mistakes of all time in 2008, I came out at number one. Right. Biggest corporate cafe in history. When you've gone through that and you're a corporate man, you're somebody that's in your blood business, the most important thing in your life, like a pianist who loses their hands, mm. it's very difficult to take. But now, I come, I travel on the underground and I prefer going on the underground than being driven around in a Rolls Royce in the back seat trying to look important, sitting in traffic, getting nowhere, being on the phone. <laughs> now I don't have to do any of that, I can sit on the train with everybody else um, and uh, yeah there's more to life than all of that, all of that, you know, yeah. um, and I've done it in a way, or okay I would have liked to have done it for longer but I have it done it and experienced it and now you know I cycle every day 25 miles I would never have been able to do that so you know every cloud you know somebody once said actually at a speech when they asked the question they said after I said all that they said well in fact then do you regret saying what you said and I said well that's the most stupid question that anybody's ever asked <laughs> obviously I do but I'm quite happy now and yeah. uh, who knows what would have happened if I would have carried on maybe I would have gone through another marriage or two yeah, interesting. Um, the bit where you talk about the speech in the book, they really, uh, I, I just thought if someone made a movie of this, this would be either the opening scene or a very pivotal yeah. scene. Yes. Is the idea of you driving to, was it Victoria Station? Because you knew that they had the papers yeah. first thing. So this is obviously, you know, pre-internet and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah, I wouldn't, with the, the internet, in I wouldn't hall. have had to drive to Victoria Station. Yeah, right. Yeah. And probably it would have uh, blown up on Twitter while yeah. you were in the room, probably. But at this point... No, so it wouldn't have blown up in the, in, on Twitter in the room because everyone in the room didn't think there was anything untoward about it. And there but wasn't maybe if anything you had untoward. a journalist in there from the Mirror and they'd tweeted, yeah, they, you see what I mean? They, yeah, they, they tweeted might. at the it's time. It was only the... Let's get this yeah. clear. It was only the press that twisted it. Yeah. It was an innocent joke, which I actually said in that speech that we sell the high quality products sold by highly trained staff um, at low prices or something like that. Yeah. I didn't ever try and uh, degrade the products or in the way that they, they said that I did. It was a, purely, it was a joke about Sherry Decanter. It was a stupid yeah, yeah, joke yeah. to have made because I could see yeah. that they could misinterpret it on But purpose. in the room you got a standing ovation. It yeah. was a, you yeah. know, a very well received speech. So. Yeah. Was, there, was that moment when you got to Victoria Station and looked at the papers, was that the moment where you had the feeling, oh, this, is, this has gone down differently with the press than I expected? No, we, no, no, because like, uh, it was in the evening standard uh, when, I, when I got, I didn't want to go back to the office because I was so exhausted mentally because I was so nervous about this speech, so glad it was over. I just lay on my bed, which is something I never did ever. Mm. And I got a phone call from my secretary saying it's in the evening standard. And she sent it round, and but that, that was on page three, and it was actually just a bit of fun. I thought, oh, that wouldn't—that's not really an issue. Um, then I went. Then it was on Sky News at six o'clock, and even then, this was getting a bit nasty. And then my PR guy phoned me up, 
and uh, he said he was speaking to some of the journalists and they were worried about it. Um, they were worried for they, you? They, they, yeah, because they felt that it was uh, offending customers right. and it would, it would come back and haunt me, uh, making fun of customers. So it was beginning to build up. Then uh, that evening I went out for dinner with my wife and Jeff Randall, the journalist, and his wife. And he said, by the way, you do know those journalists outside, paparazzi outside with cameras and stuff. So it was all beginning to uh, blow up a bit. But even then, I didn't think it was going to be as nasty as it was. So um, I went to the Victoria station, got the Times and the Sun, the only papers that came out because they're Murdoch, the way they printed them in those days came out earlier. The Sun had a little column on, or up on the front page, but it was down the side about it. And it wasn't so bad. The Times had hardly anything. So I thought I was okay. But then my driver the next day, when I woke up, gave me a copy of the Mirror of the Sun. And it was at the front page. It was all over the Sun. They'd changed their front page because they saw the Mirror had decided to do this as a front page story. And it was just beyond belief, horrendous, and lies, and just everything about it was just nonsense. Uh, but it was the nastiest thing ever. But then I looked at the sales figures about that evening, and in fact, we, instead of being 10% up, which we normally were, we were 5% down, but I thought, okay, that's on the day all this has happened, so it's only gonna get better yeah. from this. We're yeah. gonna recover, but it never recovered. It got worse and worse and worse till we were 10% down, 15% down, 25% down within, it took a while, six weeks, two months, but it was a slow death. Yeah. So it was the moment where, uh, where you start start to see some of so the way the sun had changed their second edition. Is that that's the moment where you start to see it as being, oh my god, I'm in for a, a rough time here over the next year or two or whatever. Well, yeah, it was as I say, it was a slow death, and then the figures didn't improve; they got worse. We started analysing the figures, and we saw that the more expensive product, diamond rings, which is the you rely on completely, you make more money on diamond rings than anything else. Those sales were absolutely, just absolutely decimated. Mm. Then we saw H. Samuel going downhill. And then somebody came to me, we ran a handbag company called Salisbury's at the time, which was a useless acquisition. Taught me never to go out of the jewellery business. And he came along and said, don't worry, Salisbury's is unaffected by this. Is there any part of the group that's unaffected? I said, well, that doesn't really cheer me up. Salisbury's <laughs> never took any money in the first place, so they could hardly suffer at all. But we did have a thousand shops in America. Yeah. And that wasn't affected. But coincidentally, that year, 1991, there was a massive recession in America. And those profits got wiped out on top of the gaff. There were a few jewellers in America who put the... There was one jeweller who put a message in the window saying this is what the boss of... Which was right, called Sterling okay. in America. This yeah. Nobody took any notes of it. It didn't make a jot of difference. They just yeah. thought, what's that about? Because obviously it didn't have all the, the penetration of the media out there. That, yeah. It was. It did actually make the Wall Street Journal. and It did actually make the New York Times. It did actually make... Um, what was the other one? Some mag one big magazine. I forgot what it's called. 
which I always wanted to get into. <laughs> I didn't want to get into that way. Uh, time, I think it was. Anyway, yeah. but it didn't make any difference in America. But mm. uh, and you describe uh, after that period. So you have this, you know, huge financial meltdown yes. as a result of making that speech. And then you describe a moment where you're on the phone to Charles Saatchi, yes. uh, and it's at the point where you feel like you've lost everything, yes. and you say something like, "Oh, I've just found out that there's a, a retail unit in Reading. Yes. I'm going to start all over again." And yeah, that was the day it. after I was fired. Right. But he phoned me up. Yeah. And Charles Saatchi kind of pausing and saying, "Go on holiday. Just don't do yeah. that." You know. Yeah. Um, and he was right. Do you think course. that was the best advice? Absolutely. I was in no state of mind uh, to go to jump back into the into the swimming pool after just coming out and shivering. Um, no, I needed my mind was. I had to get my head sorted out. Yeah. Um, and do you think you were thinking along those lines because that was what you knew and that was what had given you... Well, I was fired in November and I couldn't resist the fact that Christmas was coming up oh, right, and okay. jewellers yeah. only make a profit in December. Yeah. And I thought, here's a great thing. Let's take a shop on licence in Reading, which incidentally was offered to me by my estates director at Ratner's who kindly right. phoned me up, even though he would have got into trouble perhaps. Um, and I thought I'd take it for a month. I cannot lose. Mm. And I already spoke to suppliers, my old suppliers like Accurus Watches and people like that who were ready to supply me. Uh, and I thought this was a, it was just, it just was natural to me, you know, I've been working all my life to just go straight back into it. Uh, but Charles said to me, don't do that, um, just go on holiday. I said, I, I lost all my money really afford a holiday but because um, the shares went down from £4.20 to about 5p and I had big tax bills wow. uh, and a big mortgage and yeah. stuff and uh, but I still I went on holiday I went to Barbados and the funny thing was that I got on the plane to go to Barbados the whole plane was full of journalists they were going out on a jolly to Barbados <laughs> <laughs> and they wrote the correct story again so but I actually got on, always got on very well with journalists that was the uh, the strange thing mm. but you were delighted to see them when you got on the plane though right no <laughs> well I was just it was just ironic you know after being in all the press and all that stuff yeah. <laughs> so um, do you have a sense of you know with that speech being something like people people often ask the question how would you like to be remembered yes and you know I mean you basically say in the book that it's this feels like the thing that is hanging over me and I'll be remembered for and, and, and all that sort of thing mm. do you have a different sense of that um, in a sort of public realm to private realm like do you does that mean you focus more on you know family and the your legacy in terms of how you'll be remembered by the people close to you as opposed yeah, I mean, that's to the, all that matters to me really the people that are my close friends and business associates so the general public doesn't really matter it did to me a lot that's why I got into this trouble in the first place because I courted the press and if I didn't court the press and I wasn't well known I wouldn't have got all that bad publicity yeah um, but I was the perfect uh, target for the press because I was high profile but um, no as far as being remembered is concerned I'd like to be remembered that I actually didn't give up after losing everything and being in the wilderness for seven years 
lying in bed and watching Countdown, I actually then got up and I built, you know, a very successful health yeah, club yeah. business for myself for four million pounds. I then used half of that to build Britain's largest online jewellery um, website, and then, um, albeit. Britain's largest online is not very big because all the jewellers uh, I, I have shops. So I, I say we're purely, we're the biggest because we don't have shops, we're yeah. just purely online. Yeah. But it's still, you know, been successful. And um, so I'd like to think that um, I didn't, I got knocked down and I didn't stay down. Uh, you know, as I said, my business is nothing like the size of the original business. but. Uh, you know, I fought back, and then uh, that's what really comes over in my speeches. And when I do the speeches, the the business audience, which it normally is, are very, very nice, uh, genuinely. Yeah. And that is nice after all the how you know, if I was public enemy number one, and you in the sun, you really begin to get a complex about how awful a person you are. Uh, arrogant snob, which they call me, uh, which I'm not. It's very nice to go around and do all this, but you get such a warm welcome, especially yeah. after the speech. So yeah, it is a bit cathartic, if you like. Yeah. And um, on that note of uh, uh, going back to it, so you went back to the Institute of Directors. Yeah, um, I did. A few years later. And yeah. Well, what happened was that I was launching uh, Gerald Online. I wasn't allowed to call it Ratners Online because uh, Signet owned the name Ratners. Even though they closed all the shops, they wouldn't use, let me use the name Ratner because they thought that that it would be that if I opened it, they would still people would think it's still part of the group, right, yeah. and that would might give them negative. So that's a point of view. Um, I sued them on that basis, but lost, <laughs> adding insult to injury, rubbing salt. Away. But um, anyway, it's 2003, and I was launching this thing, and I on the in the health club. When I, the only thing about the health club is it's very simple. You have to get as many people to know you've got a health club as possible because all health clubs are the same. They have the same pool, they have the same machines, they have the same. So I actually got a television program called Trouble at the Top. And everyone in Henley and actually everyone in the country knew I was in a health club. And we, it was phenomenally successful because we got all this free publicity. So I turned yeah. the negative into positive. So I thought, how can I do this with Gerald Online? It's 2003. I'm not getting any publicity about this. Nobody wants to write about it. I said, I know. The only way that I'm going to get any free publicity is go back to the Institute Direct. That's all anybody's interested about, mm. the crap speech. Let's go back there. I'll get loads of publicity. So I went back there. And sure enough, it was on News at 6 on yeah. the Radio 4. It was all over the press. And they thought it was funny that I got such a great reception from everybody. They should have thrown cabbages at me or something, but they didn't. I got an incredible reception. Did a very good interview. It wasn't actually a speech. It was what they call a fireside chat, which everyone loved. Um, and it didn't actually, uh, for some reason or other, even though I got that publicity, it didn't actually make a lot of difference to the, uh, the online business. But... Uh, it was nice to go back anyway, and but actually, what happened? Even though I went back to try and promote Gerald Online, that was the intention, it, which it didn't. What it did do is it started my um, speech career, yeah. which has been very lucrative and very cathartic, as I said, and most enjoyable. I love doing it um, because there was somebody in the audience who saw me and said, "This is exactly what I need." It was Ab to travel. 
because my delegates don't don't realise that business is tough. This is always when I get offered a speech. They want me because they don't. The people are too soft. Often they don't. They're not aggressive. And they don't realise that they can get kicked back and that you have to fight. So that's what he said. And I did that speech. And then he introduced me to um, JLA, the speaking agent. And uh, then I started doing hundreds of speeches. Uh, yeah. So even though I went back there to, to, for one thing, I, I walked away with something yeah. else. Yeah, there's something really nice about that, it being a, a defining moment in terms of uh, that mistake, and then also then a defining moment in terms of a new opportunity and the, the rise again. Yeah, and also what it also did with, with speaking, it made me laugh about it, because yeah. everybody laughed about yeah. it. In fact, they played a clip of it when I did the Abta thing, and I thought, how dare they play that clip? And then I thought about it, and I now play that clip for every speech mm. I do, which is my three jokes in inverted commas at the Albert Hall. So who would believe that I would voluntarily yeah. play this, this thing that I was trying to pretend never existed? Um, and I now play the clip. So actually, you know, if I come to terms with it, if you laugh about it like everybody, if you can't, if you can't beat them, join them. And that's yeah. what I did in the end. And you said quite near the beginning of this conversation about you were talking about ego and you know let's face it yes all of this is about ego so was that a moment where you realized that you're being able to do that is a detachment of ego in some way or you, you sort of treat your ego quite differently it was a bit still there was still a bit of the old Gerald left in me and the fact that I was still after hibernating in my bed for seven years and coming out into the public realising that people still knew who the hell I was. Mm. Uh, they certainly did, everyone in there, and they were really excited that I was speaking there. It made me realise that even though I'd lost my job and the press, had, the, the general public hadn't forgotten about me. Yeah. Um, that there was still something in the brand ratness, which might sounds very strange considering that it's got this massive stigma attached to it. Um, that the fact that there is some truth in the saying that no publicity is bad publicity because there still was a, a, the fact that I was known opened doors for me yeah. even though I was known for the wrong reason yeah. so um, I realised at that point that there was a silver lining in all of this which I didn't I was unaware of before mm. that interesting there's always a silver lining in everything I guess yeah and I you know I think a lot of people listening to this will just find that really inspiring you know that yes. sense of coming back from such a difficult position and uh, you, I think whilst a lot of people in the press love a, a sort of rise and fall story a rise and fall and then a rise again is, is uh, yeah you that's know, the one thing even that more attractive is a, as a story yeah. right? people are attracted to somebody who gets knocked down and comes back mm. but if you still stay down there it's a bit cruel they'll just kick you yeah so you have to get up mm. um, you mentioned something that I wanted to just come back to earlier around drive and I think you said something around your your wife uh, says that you have less drive than you used to or you said that yeah. to your wife so I'm just wondering um, you know is that as a result of what you've been through is that uh, do you think that's an age thing? Would, would that be the case anyway? Just how, how do you see your relationship with motivation and drive? Well, um, when I used to play snooker with Charles and Michael, and I was in my 30s, there was only one thing 
and that was making money, being powerful, being famous, building up a big business. If you ask me about anything else, uh, it's irrelevant. Yeah. Family, football, holiday, nothing. It was that. We were tunnel vision focused on that. So that is something that I've got out my system, thank God, and I don't have that anymore. Which is a makes me happier because I'm not on this treadmill. But again, it takes away your drive. And yes, I am 66, not 36. So that's inevitable. Who might, might have happened? To, who knows? If I'd have stayed in Ratners, I'd still might be the chairman, chief executive. Mm. I might still be driving it forward. Who knows? That's the unknown. But all I know is I'm not doing that. And I have a decent life. Appreciate, I don't want to sound too cheesy, but I do, if you give an example, if you're a footballer who's 23 and you drive around a Bentley, you probably don't appreciate it as much as the guy that's worked all his life, had the thick and thins of it, and then has been able at the age of 60 to buy a nice Jaguar or something. You'd appreciate, appreciate it much more yeah. because you've yeah. sort of you earned it you don't feel guilty about it so that's the situation that I'm in mm. at the moment I don't feel um, you know I do feel that I've earned what I got um, and I don't because I've been criticised so much because you know still today on Twitter if you pick up if I, if I search my name on Twitter I'll get a load of people doing a ratner people who screwed up today 2016, over 25 years ago when I did the speech, they'll still be doing that, saying that somebody's such an idiot they could have had Gerald Ratner running that company or something, that's just the, the whole time, the fact that I built the world's largest jewellery business and then built Britain's online jewelries again and then I was successful health club business doesn't make a blind bit of difference, I'm a complete uh, idiot uh, according to Twitter um, not the people who heard my speeches that's exactly the opposite but all of those people still use me as an example right so I've had all of that so there's no point in me now trying to um, impress anybody <laughs> you know in fact a lot of times the speeches are, are very good because people have low expectations of me right um, well, I guess it's not about impressing people so much as you're going to provide them with motivation and inspiration or a lesson around exactly exactly you know, because how, what how what what, what what it is i once read a book once and the first line of it it was the load it was the road less traveled by scott m peck about life basically and he his first line in the book is life is difficult if you accept that it's no longer difficult mm. so that's a very simple lesson for people to learn that when they're young that they think they're going through things and everything's hunky-dory it isn't something dreadful god forbid i mean it is a fact that we will have some rubbish thrown in we will not escape that throughout our life and you've got to deal with it and don't give up and don't be knocked over by it and don't try to minimize the suffering which will inevitably happen because of it because you will suffer um, whether it's problems with your children or problems with your wife or problem in business or problems with your health you are very lucky to escape all of those things so how do you deal with it and that's um, people in the audience 
realise, hey ho, yeah, here by the grace of God go I, but or you know I, and they come up to me and say, well I had something not as bad as you, but you know, and I said, yeah, well, that's normal. Yeah. Don't don't think that you've been singled out. That's normal. Don't be surprised by it. Life is is like that. It's mm. it's got a habit of sort of going biting you. You know when you least expect it. Yeah, and I guess you know as someone who owns a business, you know you have the rough times in business where your mind takes you to that place of what if I lose everything? What if what if I yeah. don't? What if I lose this business? What if I don't have any money? And I suppose uh, one of the things for me, just like listening to you talk, is well that wouldn't necessarily be the end of the world, it'd be the end of that little world for that exactly. moment. And I think that's a really, I think that's a, a really difficult thing for a lot of people to grasp, you know, um, when, yeah. you, when you own a business and when you're, when you're running businesses well, and stuff. this fellow, uh, a friend of mine, he recently was under pressure in business. He buys products from the big retailers that is uh, that they want to clear off. What happens is that if Black & Decker want to sell a drill to B&Q, B&Q will turn around and say, well, we've got a whole load of drills from another people, you know, so we can't run your drills. So, so B&Q, so Black & Deck can say, well, we'll take all those drills from that other manufacturer away for you to run, and then they will sell them to this guy, right. whose name I won't mention. But then, so he had an unbelievably successful business, and he's come from a very poor background. Um, but suddenly his business went fucked. He brought in investors, they put pressure on him, and he suddenly had a breakdown. His wife phoned me and said he's not at work. That's unlike him, he's normally at four o'clock in the morning. Right. He's lying in bed. So I went around to see him, and I took him to a psychiatrist, because I'd gone to visit a psychiatrist after my speech, and I took him to that same guy, and the guy, the psychiatrist said to me, well, he's terrified because he's come from a very poor background. He's terrified that he's heading back there and he can't handle it. Mm. So that was, that was, no, so that was the, um, that, that would come on the, uh, <laughs> so, um, he, he couldn't handle that at all. And, uh, it's a shame because you should be able to handle that because it's, it could happen to us all. Yeah. And you don't want to have a breakdown because of it. It's not, as you say, that was part of your life, but there's other uh, other facets to life. Yeah. There's a, other marvellous facets. You shouldn't be uh, a one-trick pony that, you know, because that, if that pony dies, then you've got anything. So, mm. you know, you should have some balance, which I do today. Yeah. And so presumably part of your story as well is about discovering balance. It sounds like you Absolutely. had... Uh, a very one-track business focus. Yeah, I did, which is unhealthy. Um, and now there's a lot more things to yeah. it, to my life, like cycling. I know it sounds, might sound ridiculous, mm. but I get all my best ideas when I'm on my bike. Yeah. yeah. I don't get my best ideas when I'm under pressure in the boardroom or in the office or at home. I'm a, I, you know, when you meet somebody and you can't think of their name because you're under pressure to do so that second. But if, you're, if they're not around, you'll think of their name. And that's what it's like with ideas. If you're under pressure, which we all are the whole time, especially with the internet, you, you don't perform yeah. as well. But when you're on your bike or doing any sort of exercise, you're in a much more relaxed state of mind. It's one of the biggest things that uh, my company talks to businesses around is 
the prioritization of thinking space yes and how that just seems to be so crowded and crushed in the exactly. way open plan offices work and the way different people work and it's a good way to describe it I think um, whether you get that on your bike whether you get that from walking whether you get that from going to the gym or whatever like it's, it's just a, I think it's just a really yeah, important you can get it from walking as well yeah yeah sorry I interrupted yeah or the gym yeah oh. absolutely there's one other thing I wanted to just ask you about which um, was uh, when you were on a plane and it filled with smoke and you had this yeah brush with death and I'd just love to know what, what that taught you well I went to uh Florida with my the president who called him president is the president of our US company Nate Light his son actually runs it today and um, he invited us on his boat which might sound fabulous but actually it wasn't um, <laughs> because I wanted to be at home at Christmas and the weather wasn't that every time I go to Florida or LA they say it's like the worst weather for 50 years or something <laughs> and I said well that's good because last time I went there they said it was the worst weather for 100 years so it was <laughs> snowing actually in Florida it was awful anyway we leave on New Year's Eve and um, we get on a British Airways flight from Miami to Heathrow we're in first class actually one of the other passengers was Richard Caring, who now owns all these restaurants in London uh, chatting to him and uh, we take off and suddenly the they're screaming on board the whole plane is full of smoke can't see the plane is bouncing about pilot then says something like it's on fire or something and he's going to do a crash landing we land in the Bahamas but uh, it, Although we did land in the Bahamas, those 10 minutes were pretty hairy. Uh, we had a baby, my daughter Sarah, who's now 28, was about one or two. We asked the air hostess what we do with the, with the mask for her, and the air hostess has told us to get lost. She was scared about her life. Wow which was a slightly different attitude than she had when she was serving us with the champagne <laughs> five minutes earlier and uh, just told my wife to get stuffed or something. Um, anyway, it landed in the Bahamas and uh, it was a wonderful feeling actually because of the feeling of you thought you were going to die and then you were no longer feeling you were going to die. It was a wonderful relief mm. of euphoria bit like I get after my speeches now um, and uh, anyway it's ridiculous what crossed my mind when I was think thought I was gonna die all I could think about was I'm glad we had a good Christmas which we had because all I was worried about what the analysts might think about me and I think oh I'll go down very well because we just announced that a fantastic Christmas mm. that was wasn't anything else about family that was how obsessed I was with business so. yeah but um, it was a terrifying experience say the least yeah. mm. do you think it was another one of those moments where you look back on it as a as a gift you know you, you did come through that and you you didn't die and you know I mean that could have been a terrible accident and uh, not really <laughs> not really but if I was when I did go and see the psychiatrist after the speech I was walking down on my way in Harley Street I was walking down the road 
and a pane of glass fell out uh, fell out and just missed me by an inch wow. and I happened to say that to the psychiatrist he said well, he said, well that's, you should be pleased about that because you could have died and you were saved appreciate things and that cheered me up a bit yeah but at the time I was a different sort of person I didn't value the fact of just being alive like I do today mm. um, and here I was saved because that pain of glass um, so I didn't think anything like I wasn't thinking that I didn't appreciate yeah I just didn't appreciate um, appreciate little things mm. like I do now you know that was the mindset it was different I think that's a lovely um, through line through all of this isn't it really just the, the sense of being able to be much more in the moment much more appreciative things much more uh, contented I guess this is everything mm. I mean what are we on this earth for We're, you know we do want to be have a happy existence we're all trying to find happiness in some way. And I've learnt that it's not the way that everyone uh, expects it to be. Self, instant self-gratification. If you sit at home drinking a bottle of Chablis and fill yourself up with fish and chips, all your favourite things, which are mine, <laughs> doesn't actually make you happy. Actually, what, and one of the speeches that I did was of an old people's home which I wasn't paid for, but it was a friend of mine who's on the board of the old people's home, and he asked me to do it. And you get, I don't want to sound too cheesy again, but as I, when I did the speech, you know, I walked out into the street and Clapham, and I felt really good about myself, because I'd given yeah. something, um, whereas I felt better than I do when I get paid thousands of pounds to do a speech, because you actually, so actually it's annoying that God has made us in a, in a way that <laughs> that we don't get pleasure from all the, uh, of, of just absorbing things into ourselves, we get it from doing it the other way around, mm. and um, so I've learned, I don't want to sit here and say, and say, well business is a terrible thing and you know it's bad and all that, they're far from, I'm far from that. Mm. It's just a question of business is fantastic, making money is fabulous. All of that is great, but don't be obsessed with it. Get a sense of balance, yeah. which I've now learned. Uh, but I mean, I am, as I said, I'm 60, it's taken me many years to, to learn that. Mm. And, it, and that does, in the end, uh, make you a much happier, contented person. You're not always uh, striving for something which you're never gonna reach. It is a, you know, life is a dark, twisted road and we all have to walk it ourselves, yeah. as First Aid Kit, the group, would say. Um, we don't get any help, that's the truth. You might think you do, but you don't. You have to do it yourself. Mm. And it's only when you get tough like that and deal with it that you actually um, feel some sense of achievement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I often end these conversations by asking people uh, where they can find more about you but it, it feels yes. like it, if you put your name into Google lots of stuff comes up is there anything Loads particularly uh, that you want to uh, just draw people's attention to I mean I have, have to mention your book which we'll put in the show notes here so that yeah. people can go and have a read but uh, yeah where would you like people to go to find out more about what you're up to and well not Wikipedia <laughs> <laughs> uh, well my book 
if they could ever come along to one of my speeches, you would always you would get really. Uh, although I do do it, deliver it in a rather light-hearted, try and um, try and engage the audience with humour. But that's really just to get their attention. There is a serious message there, and you know people do get the wrong impression of me. But I mean, from this podcast and this interview, uh, from my speeches, yes, some of the internet is uh, accurate. Um, but uh, I would just like to think that uh, not archives, archives of the Sun newspaper or the Daily Mirror. <laughs> well, if you do that, just do exactly the opposite. Uh, but I find that everything that I read in the tabloid press, and here I am criticising the press after saying you don't, is exact. And it, when I do read about the press, about somebody I know or an industry I know, it's completely the opposite. They get the name of their children wrong, they get where they live wrong. Everything in the press seems to be inaccurate. So, mm. you know, I am a victim of, of that in a way. And uh, when people do uh, discover more about me, they think, oh, well, you're not so bad after all. Mm. But that's well, the case with a lot of people, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, you were one of the first people when I came up with the idea of uh, doing Beyond Busy. You were one of the first people on the list because I just knew you would have a fascinating story. And uh, I have to oh, say, well. you've completely lived up to the billing. Oh, so, well, thanks uh, very much. Uh, yeah, it's just been fascinating. And I, oh, well, I think I appreciate there'll be uh, lots of value for people to take away. So Excellent. Well, yeah. that's very nice of you to say so. So, um, yeah, I'll just say, Gerald Ratner, thank you very much for being on Beyond Busy. Well, thanks very much. For, it's been a pleasure to meet you, Graham. That's it for my interview with Gerald Ratner and I hope you enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed making it. It was, it was just a really fun conversation to be able to have. Uh, so thanks to Gerald for, for being part of Beyond Busy. And if you want to find out more, his book is excellent, by the way, uh, The Rise and Fall and Rise Again of Gerald Ratner. Uh, you'll find that in all good bookshops and on Amazon and all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, really uh, thrilled to be able to do that one. It was, it was when I first came up with the idea for Beyond Busy, he was one of the first people I wrote down because I just thought, yeah, like huge success, big high profile failure. Like he's going to have some really interesting stuff to say. Uh, and it kind of verged into philosophy towards the end there, which is... Um, yeah, that's, that was really what I always wanted Beyond Busy to be. So I hope you uh, got something out of that and, and enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed making it. Uh, and thanks again to Gerald. So if you are a regular listener to Beyond Busy, uh, you may have noticed a subtle change to the format. So in previous episodes, I've always done a beginning and an end, and then also kind of interrupted you in the middle as well. And, you know, uh, come up with uh, perhaps something I've been working on or a little bit of news or a little bit of kind of productivity stuff or whatever. Uh, and that was, I kind of came up with that format because that seems to be the format that most people adopt on their podcasts. And then I kind of realized I was running out of interesting stuff to say in the middle and it was like, it was stretching it a bit and they were coming out quite long and whatever. So I've just taken the decision to ditch the middle bit and just go with the beginning and end uh, and let the whole conversation flow. I will continue with the aesthetic of not editing and, you know, leaving it as a capturing of 
a place and time and, and, and moments rather than, you know, editing the best bits out kind of thing. I just really like, I, I love that approach in other podcasts. And so that's just what I've always wanted uh, Beyond Busy to be like. Uh, so yeah, like I'd love to just hear your thoughts on all of that. Um, it's a new year and I can play around with this as much as I like. So um, if you've got thoughts and you want to uh, suggest different ways that I can do this, then uh, do drop me a line at Graham Alcott on Twitter. It's probably the best place to get hold of me. Uh, but there was an ulterior motive to making the podcast slightly simpler as well, uh, which is that I am not going to be doing much work in 2017. Uh, in fact, I'm going to be doing no work between January and July in 2017. Uh, I am going to experience what it's like to be beyond busy and just get, get over busyness and uh, just spend some time being still instead, which is a really tricky thing for me. I, I, you know, I've had, I had a six day a week paper round from when I was 13 and I've run, you know, and then I, I ran a national charity for three years, which was a full on, very involved, uh, thinking about it the whole time kind of a job. Uh, and then for the last eight years, uh, I think productive has been my baby and it's been a very similar thing. You know, you're always thinking about it. You think about it during the weekends, you know, if you've got downtime, it tends to be, you know, work thoughts of what's popping into your head and everything else. And it's just kind of, you know, that mental busyness um, feels like a difficult thing to shift. Um, and so I've just had this plan for, for quite a few years. I had a, the idea of going traveling. Uh, and last year was quite a difficult year for me in my, my personal life. So um, uh, I uh, separated from my wife last year. Uh, and one of the things that's happened as a result of that is that my plan to go traveling uh, with my family is just no longer on the table. And that was going to be where I did my big sabbatical trip. And so by not having that, you know, uh, in the pipeline, it just kind of felt like, OK, I still want to do this sabbatical thing. How can I do it in a different way? So what I've come up with is the idea of doing a sabbatical at home. I'm going to be uh, not engaging in any work between January and July uh, 2017. And the ulterior, ulterior motive with the podcast is basically like if I just record the intros and outros uh, like up front. So basically I've got a whole stack of interviews uh, that I've already done and I'm just recording all the intros and outros you know, at the very start of the year so that I can then not be doing that um, all through the year. Uh, and then the team at Think Productive will keep putting these episodes out so they'll still be Beyond Busy uh, but it, and it will be me hosting it, but I'll be hosting it in the past, <laughs> if that makes sense. Uh, and I'm going to be uh, spending some time. Uh, well, I'm going to be spending some time. I don't really know what I'm going to be doing. It's, it's kind of terrifying. Like I woke up this morning and I had to take my son to nursery at eight o'clock this morning. And I had to record this, which is literally the final uh, thing uh, at the very start of January that I'm doing uh, before I just close everything down and stop checking emails. So literally, like I'm just moving into this new uh, phase right now. Like it's kind of felt like the last few days I've been winding down and, and starting to to think about the sabbatical period um, a lot more. Um, the idea of stillness and not being busy and not filling my days with productive and interesting stuff sort of terrifies me and makes me feel a bit guilty and lots of other stuff. So I'm, you know, I'm I'm doing this partly. Uh, with a view to self-fulfillment uh, and reinvention and all of that stuff. Um, I th I'm going to use it as a time to reflect and work out what my role in the world should be and what my role in Think Productive should be and what I want to do next and all of that. Uh, but I think also it, it naturally lends itself to uh, just a nice experiment to uh, learn from as part of writing the book Beyond Busy. Uh, so you'll, you'll remember if you've been listening to this from the very beginning uh, that I've been for the last couple of years kind of thinking about, and I've got a, a contract to write a book uh, called Beyond Busy, which will be 
really aimed at people who are stuck in that trap of, of feeling busy and feeling like everything's phonetic and and when do you get to step off the hamster wheel and enjoy life and all of that sort of thing you know so i you know I, it's something that i have thought about a lot over the years is like is that the is that the flaw or the downside of productivity uh, training and learning and all the stuff that I've been doing over the last few years. It's like, if it makes people like, you know, much more efficient at continuing to just go faster on the hamster wheel and be busier, uh, then it's failing. And, you know, I happen to think that my book and the, the way Think Productive approaches all of that stuff uh, really gets beyond that idea anyway and gets much more into how do we be happy and how do you have a good work-life balance and how do you have less stress? But I think it's, you know, there is, there is some damage in that whole industry of optimization and uh, doing everything in the most efficient and optimized way possible. Um, in that it does take you slightly away if it's done badly or it's done in the wrong way. It takes you slightly away from just being okay with what you are and being uh, happy in the present moment with what you have. And I think all those things are just really worth exploring. So I'm hoping that the next six months, uh, I'm hoping I'm gonna find it as challenging as I think I'm finding it so far. And I'm hoping that from that will come, you know, some interesting learning and interesting perspectives for me to put in the book as well. So um, you will hear about all of that in due course. Probably not over the next few episodes of Beyond Busy because they were recorded like in the past and stuff. And that's kind of how this is going to work for the next little while. Um, so um, I'll put the link to the blog post that um, explains all this in the show notes as well. So I would love your thoughts and feedback on that. Uh, don't email me. I'm not checking it. Uh, but you can tweet me, so just at Graham Alcott. And certainly for the next little while, I'll be on Twitter. I may take a full, uh, I, I may take a full internet holiday actually for a little while. I was, I was gonna say a social media holiday, like I'm already off Facebook. I may go off Twitter as well, but like how about just like a month with no internet or something like that? I've done it before, but yeah, full on. I'm gonna, yeah, I think at some point I'm gonna go full on amongst uh, many other uh, bits of silence and. Uh, famines from things that were previously feasts and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's just a few thoughts from me on uh, the start of 2017. And uh, yeah, do uh, uh, come and say hi on Twitter and, and let me know uh, your thoughts on what you think I should be doing uh, over the next few months. Uh, wish me luck. It's going uh, to be an interesting time for sure. And uh, thanks for tuning in. So subscribe and tell your friends about Beyond Busy and all that good stuff. And until next time, take care. See you soon.